1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. Every now and then here on the podcast, we step outside of the bounds of what we normally do when we talk to veterans and soldiers and Marines about their stories, and we like to expand our horizons a little bit. And this week's special guest certainly fits that bill. He is a multiple Emmy winner and the creator of Sports Science. You have probably seen him on espn several times and now he hosts his own podcast and the reason why we have him on because his podcast is very similar in vain to what ours does here on the hazard ground it is called the brink of midnight and it is john Brankus on the hazard ground podcast john welcome thank you so much for joining us
0: Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Love what you do, and I'm, I'm very honored to be your guest.
1: Well, we appreciate that. Uh, at least we know we, we have one fan, but we'll get to your podcast, <laughs> The Brink of Midnight, in, in a moment, because a, as I said just in the introduction, you know that podcast is really about inspirational stories and, and people turning a bad into a good, and that's a lot of what we hear on the hazard ground as soldiers you know, tell their stories of combat and survival, uh, Marines, uh, airmen, all the like. But you know, your career is certainly not the typical one, um, especially when you talk about ESPN. How did you get into the field that you're in, creating sports science?
0: Yeah, it's pretty, it's a pretty crazy story. You know, I was born and raised in Vienna, Virginia, um, which is, for anybody who knows the area, is eight miles outside of Washington D.C. It's right next to Tyson's Corner. But when I moved there, you know, it was the boonies. Um, so I grew, you know, just grew up in a in a you know, very Normal suburban neighborhood where there were a lot of government workers and a lot of government. There wasn't a whole lot of entertainment, but I always knew entertainment was in my blood. You know, I was in the, in the student government. Always wanted to create stuff, and I know I knew I wanted to do something. I went to the University of Virginia. When I was there, again, not a lot of entertainment. It's Not known for cranking out entertainers, um, but I was. I, I really created my own major and decided that, you know, I really want to get into this. And there's a gentleman named Steven Soderbergh who lived in the area. He's now obviously gone on to win multiple Oscars. and But at the time, he only finished Sacrifice and Videotape. Um, and was just finishing his second movie. And he lived in the Charlottesville area. I said to him, how do you get into entertainment? He said, just learn to do everything yourself. Don't You don't have to depend on anybody. If you learn to do everything yourself, then you'll know how to hire and what you really are passionate about. So I I literally did just that, get out of college and made my own movie and created a production company with my brother-in-law. And that production company literally focused on sport and science. And we started that company out of the basement of my parents' house. Um, And we ended up putting those, uh, those things together, sport and science. And the original program was called XMA, Extreme Martial Arts. Uh, Tom Cruise did the rap sport came out during the, uh, the, when he was in the last Samurai. And uh, National Geographic ended up liking that so much that they said, "Hey, do that XMA thing, but science it up. So we created a show called Fight Science that, you know, brought in the world's greatest martial artists and we discovered which style produced the most amount of force. Fox owned National Geographic and also Fox Sports. Um, it was so successful on National Geographic that they said, let's run fight science opposite the original Peyton Manning versus Eli Manning Sunday night football game. It was one of their highest rated shows of the year with no advertising. They're like, what else do you have? We said, well, we have this show called sport science. So then we were on Fox sports for a couple of years, won three Emmys. ESPN came along, you know, acquired Sports science. And we've now done over 1500 segments and um, you know, have won uh, six Emmys. So we're, we're we're really, really fortunate, and it's been a, a crazy ride coming from Vienna, Virginia.
1: All right, let me go back here, because I have, like, tons of questions right now. One, uh, you graduated college, and you have this degree, and yet you start a business out of your parents' basement. I can imagine you didn't make a lot of money at the beginning of this whole thing. So what <laughs> <laughs> kind of what was the, you know, how do you not lose faith? What were your parents saying? I mean, everybody think this was crazy?
0: Yeah, my parents... Were the most encouraging parents you could possibly have. My dad worked for the government for 20 years. My mother, you know, was uh, started out as a nurse when she was very young, and she uh, ran, ultimately ran the nursing program at George Mason University. They were really supportive and just do whatever it is that you want to do. And when I came to them and said I want to be in entertainment, I think I want to make movies or TV shows, they said, "All right, we'll, we'll support you, just." Figure it out. Obviously, they have no connections, so they liter- literally get- let me in the summer write a book. That I'm like, I don't know how to write a screenplay, but I'm going to write a book. And I, you know, so I wrote a book that I then adapted into a screenplay when I was at UVA. And they were like, "Go for it. Just, just keep running and run hard, and you know, figure out what you're best at." And obviously, for many years, I, we were, we were making no money. I'm living in you know living in my parents' house just like unable to make money, but working. And then you start hiring employees and you make sure you put your employees before you. So you're paying people way more than you can pay yourself, but you just keep growing and you just keep building on success. And finally we ultimately reached that tipping point where the business was taking off and we were you know, able to generate more and more shows and more and more projects. And um, ultimately we were able to uh, you know, grow it. And it was, you know, it's been an amazing ride. Um, you know, we grew the company, ended up selling the company and um, you know but I'm still retained as the host of sports science. so it's it's been a crazy ride, but you know there definitely it wouldn't wouldn't have happened without my parents and without a lot of faith that we were on the right path.
1: You know you wanted to be in entertainment. You could have created anything. Why science? Are you like a nerd that no one knows about? Like do you even like science? Did you pass science? like why why sports science?
0: So science and sport are genuinely, my two passions. Okay. When people feel like, oh, what are your – I grew up – remember, I grew up in the D.C. area. I was born in 1971. That means I had a World Series with the Baltimore Orioles and Cal Ripken's rookie year. The Nationals didn't exist then. We had three Super Bowls with the Redskins. We had an NBA championship with the Bullets. I mean, D.C. was sports town USA. Um, so I was just hooked on sports. Also, at the same time, I was a kid that I just am not a fiction guy. Like, I just don't love sitting down and reading a book and escaping in it. I like to read science. And I was always a very good science student and math student. And I just – it's genuinely my passion. It's what I read. It's what – I'm like, I am – you know, sort of that closet nerd that just—I I like to read books on quantum physics. Like it's uh, <laughs> that that gets me excited. So when was Quantum Leap our- your
1: favorite show growing up? Were you a Scott Bakula fan?
0: <laughs> <laughs> quantum Leap. You know, Quantum—it's—it's Le- funny how I—I wasn't—you know—a huge TV junkie. I was always just making my own stuff. Um, I, th- I found it really important to just want to create something out of nothing. Um, so, you know, putting those two things together, when we started our, our production company, we specialized in sport TV. We got, we got the contracts for the Washington Bullets that, that, who then became the Wizards and the Washington Capitals, and then got other contracts for like the St. Louis Rams and the New York Rangers and the Phoenix Coyotes and doing lots of sports TV at the same time, because we were in Northern Virginia, the Discovery Channel launched a channel called the Science Channel and we were one of their main providers for a show called Science Live and the Young Scientist Challenge and you know we did the the you know uh Discovery's documentary on the Wright brothers on uh the, their 100th anniversary of flight I mean we were just doing lots of different science programming then we fused those two things together
1: It's pretty amazing I mean I, you know it's such a niche market so to speak or or it's something that not a lot of people did to the level that you did it and most people wouldn't think back then to combine sports and science. I mean now it's you know it's everything because obviously science has invaded the way athletes treat their bodies and their studies and all the yep. math that goes behind it and all those other things so now it's you know it's, it's it's a big part of it but you kind of were at the forefront of that. I, I don't know if it's fair to call you a pioneer for it, but it, certainly there was a lot of what you were doing that was ahead of its time
0: you know what's interesting is that the term sports science. When we created the show, that was back in 2006, when we originally sold it, and it aired in 2007, that term really wasn't part of our lexicon. Right. Um, We've now been on, you know, over 10 years. And have been, you know, we're on the worldwide leader in sports and it's now, uh, you know, it's a term that everybody uses. Um, I think you're right. We were kind of in front of the wave, you know, obviously we're not responsible for everything that's happened in sports science, but we certainly were ahead of the curve in terms of um, having a platform and showing that science is a super important part of sport and not only is it, edu- you know, not only is it, is it educational, but it's entertaining as well
1: certainly is. Uh, You know, the sports science episodes are something that people kind of just gravitate towards. Um, You know, I can remember some of the the bigger ones. I remember the recent one, the Odell Beckham Jr. catch with the three fingers, and, you know, that was always a good one. You know what I always wondered, though, when you did the sports sciences, is who was the poor bastard who volunteered to get hit by a football player? Like, that always was the job. You know what? This is a cool segment. I just don't want that guy's job.
0: And that, and that was my job.
1: You're lying. So that is my job. You're it's lying. still me.
0: All that, so look up the YouTube clip called Abuse Brinkus um, on YouTube. And, yeah, I've, you know, for the decade plus, you know, I'm the human crash test dummy. So I'm the guy in pads. And because I own the company and created the show, and I'm like, well, if I'm going to put someone in harm's way, might as well be me. So
1: <laughs> I guess when you started you know, the company, I'm, you weren't handing out health insurance, so it had to be you. <laughs>
0: it it was funny. It's like, well, we got to figure out a way, you know, I became the host because when we were sitting down with uh, Fox at the time, um, the guy running the network was like, well, are you getting to host the show? And I said, anybody you want, because you're guys doing this as a license deal. And he said, well, how about you? I'm like, great. We'll have, I'll be the host because I'm a very average person, you know, I'm five foot eight and a half, you know, 160 pounds. So I can show the contrast between great athletes and, People like myself who are not great athletes, um, you know. And if it doesn't work out, I can fire myself. That's no big deal. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, as it turns out, it worked out great.
1: How is this set up for sports science? Like, where is it done? Like, I mean, you, you need a lot of space at certain times for this, no?
0: Yeah, it's shot in L.A. and we have we have our own studio in Los Angeles. And when we originally created the show, it was done out of giant airplane hangars, actually that SpaceX now occupies. So it was it was a really big setup. Um, when we started out, especially in the early days, but yeah, we have our own studio now in Los Angeles.
1: I know that you mentioned you've sold it. So, do you have any rights to Sports Science anymore, or are you just the host and that's it?
0: Um, I am the host. The you know, and I own the company that created it. Um, so ESPN, you know, owns uh, the brand itself, and I'm now the host. So um, it, it's you know, but it's just it just continues on. You know, it's that property of everybody sort of has that property in their life. Um, that they can look back on and say, yeah, that was the thing, you know, that left a mark. And sports science has certainly been that property. And now, you know, from sports science, we've been able to, you know, I've been able to sort of grow and, you know, go on to new ventures as well while re- uh, remaining the host of sports
1: science. When you look at what you created, it's almost like being a parent to a certain extent. You know, you, you've raised this thing from the beginning. Uh, are, are you happy with the direction that it's gone? Or, I mean, did you ever expect it could go this way?
0: The honest-to-God truth is after season one, um, it we really felt like, wow, we came up with a great idea, and are there any more ideas that we can nest within this idea? Could we do a season two? And it really wasn't until after the end of season two that I felt very strongly, dude, this could go on ad infinitum. I mean, we can just keep making this because every door that we cracked open, we discovered ten more doors that we didn't know even existed. Um, but the first two seasons were a real slog, and um, it was a it was a, such a challenge coming up with stuff that was interesting and you know making it all happen. But after that second season, that's that's the point at which I was like, okay, you know, I could see this thing going on forever. And now we're in you know ten years plus.
1: I know these two things could be the same, but let's look at them differently. Most memorable sports science episode and your favorite sports science episode.
0: You know, um, I, I get asked this question a lot, and you know, when you create fifteen hundred of anything, it's hard to right. nail. You know, boil it down to one. So it almost has to be into subcategories. Um, well, then you know, allow me to that- allow
1: me to rephrase then. Before you answer, what which ones stick out to you the most? For what reason?
0: The, the ones that stick out to me the most are really the people that you get to meet along the way. Um, you know, getting to work with people like Ray Lewis or Larry Fitzgerald or Drew Brees, and you know, guys who are just mega stars, and they're such genuine, incredibly authentic human beings. You know, we don't pay anybody to come into the studio. Um, you know, these guys don't have any, ont- they don't have an entourage. It's, they don't make a big scene out of anything. They're just, when I, when I use the phrase and say, look, they're just like you and me, it's just, they're just like you and me, but amazing athletes. Um, but they they stay so humble and so grounded. Um, and the reason why they gravitate towards something like sports science is it's an opportunity to share their gifts with the world. In a really unique way, and it's also an opportunity for them to learn something or to confirm something that they suspect. Um, That that's really the gift that it's a it's a you know definitely is a two way street. We're getting something out of it, and so are the athletes.
1: Well, you mentioned Ray Lewis, and that's an easy transition for me to talk about your podcast, uh, The Brink of Midnight, because he was your first guest. And you know the one thing about the podcast that stood out to us. Um, here at the Hazard Ground is you talk about, you know, the moment when everything changed for the people that you're interviewing. And, and, and they come from all walks of life, and I'll allow you to talk more about them in a moment. But we see that a lot similarly here on the Hazard Ground. You know, when someone gets involved in combat and, you know, either they get shot or they step on a landmine, or they get hit by an IED, or it's their friend who gets killed in combat, whatever it may be. Um, all these kind of moments that change the course of their lives, uh, and, and how they're able to overcome that is is the main crux of what our podcast is all about. And, and you're doing something very, very similar, just with much bigger name guests than we get usually. But it's called The Brink of Midnight. And tell me how it started for you. What was the impetus for for creating a podcast?
0: So really, the mastermind behind it all is my wife, um, Lizzie. And I, I can tell you because. It really, really goes back to the way that Lizzie and I met. We, we sort of had this fairy tale Hollywood, the way that we met and the way that we got married. We, we met um, when I was traveling from Aspen, Colorado to Los Angeles, passing through the uh, Denver. And the person I was traveling with is, was a business colleague, and there was a ticket mix-up, and we got separated. So I, I'm not even sure if I sat in my seat or his seat, but I had to take a different seat. Um, the one I thought, and I sat next to the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. I fell when I say love at first sight, it was love literally at first sight. I, we fortunately had a mechanical problem where we all had to get off the plane and we spent five hours in the Denver airport. And when we were getting off the plane, I went up to the person I was traveling with and I said, I will give you a hundred dollars to stay away from me. I just met the woman I'm going to marry. She called her parents and said, Hey, I just met the guy I'm going to marry. No way. <laughs> so, listen, we then land in Los Angeles. And I say to her, What are the chances I can get your information? She's like, Pretty good. We exchange information. Turns out that we lived two blocks away from each other on oh, wow. the same street in Brentwood.
1: That and is she amazing. was holding
0: a book. She was holding a book that she had bought that was called A Perfect Match. And we literally sometimes God just throws you a softball. Right. And says here you go. <laughs> and we were both seeing other people at the time. We immediately went home and we were like, okay, we're not seeing anybody else, and we're getting married. <laughs> so we don't really have a date. When we when we said, well, we're going to get married, and when you when you then dive into other people who have love at first sight stories, and other people who have these impactful, just you know, you know. Uh, brilliant ideas that just come to them in a flash and they know it. It's the the energy of the universe is this, this force that is very real. And you know love when you encounter it. You know evil when you encounter it. You know you have this gut feeling when something is good or bad. And when you go with it and run with it, it's amazing what life will bring back. It's that positive energy begets positive energy. So we have this amazing story of how we met. Ended up getting married in the Vatican in Rome. Oh wow! um, Having you know, having a a total fairy tale wedding, um, and we've been married fourteen year fourteen years and have two amazing children. There was another moment that happened where uh, you know we had been ten years into marriage. We then I then was playing my guitar. I'd put my guitar down for twenty years. I then picked it back up and taught myself Pro Tools to record some songs with no plans to do anything with it. I was just going to write some songs and have some fun. She walks by the office and is singing this amazing melody. And she has this incredible voice. And I said to her, how did you do that? She said, well, I was classically trained in the long beach opera company. I'm like what? She said, well, I've only told you that like 50 times. So this is 10 years into marriage. I'm like, all right, well, let's start writing some songs together. So we, we, we formed our little band. It's called Brink of Midnight. And we wrote our first song, Um, was actually a Christmas song that we put out.
1: I read about this. And it
0: ended up charting. It ended up charting at number 30 on the AC chart. Literally, it went down the list saying, like, it was literally Bruce Springsteen, Madonna, Lizzie and John Brinkus, Bing Crosby. Like, how did this happen? (laughs) Sirius XM picked it up and was playing in heavy rotation on their Holly Channel, on the the biggest Christmas station in the world. So Lizzie said, look, during this last election cycle, Lizzie, Lizzie said, look... We have these amazing moments that have happened in our life, and everybody else does too. There's so much negative news that's out there in the world right now. We need to do everything we can to spread the positive news. We need to tell people, look, there are these life-changing moments that happen to everyone. Even if it's a bad moment in their life, somehow they bounce back and, and bounce higher than where they were before. We need to get a positive message out there. So she came up with, you know, the, the Brink of Midnight podcast and obviously with the amount of time that I've had in entertainment, um, I've been very fortunate to meet some incredible people um, and the stories that we've been able to gather, you know, whether it be from Ray Lewis or Rob Riggle or Randy Couture, or you know, tons of other celebrities. They're just amazing stories that we're finding give people hope that give people hope of, wow, life can change. There is positive energy out there. Maybe that moment has already happened and you just haven't recognized it. Um, It's interesting the way that your podcast and our podcast line up in terms of Wanting to spread that positive message, whether it be from a, a tragedy that happened to you or to a loved one, it's something of an inflection point in your life where from that point forward, everything was different.
1: You know, It's weird. I mean, you talk about how the podcast was created. I, I similarly had the same sort of epiphany when the hazard ground was created. You know, I, I, I work. I'm still in the military now. I'm a lieutenant colonel. And, uh, you know, when I would go to my armory uh, on drill weekends because I'm in the National Guard, they would have these paintings hanging on the wall, chronicling military history, everything from the Revolutionary War all the way up to the war, you know on terror and everything else and you 'd see these you know beautiful pictures of of like a plane flying over Germany in World War II or a, a civil war battle and everything else and I kept passing this one battle. Picture called Takugar, and it happened in Afghanistan uh, in, in early or late 2001, December of 2001. And I there's always there's always been a story underneath them all about you know a little blurb about what the whole thing was about. And I read the little blurb, and I kept passing, and I kept reading it, and I would stop always at this one particular one about the Battle of Takugar in Afghanistan, and read it over and over again. And the thought to myself was, you know, why doesn't everybody know about this story? And then I started doing some more research on it, and I'm like. Oh my God! Like this is the most incredible story in the world. Why does why is this not a movie? Why you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, American snipers out there, lone survivors out there, and those are amazing stories, and they're great. But I just felt like there were so many other stories that needed to be told, and we're talking about thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of veterans, each who have had their own. I mean, I have my own, you know, who have their own stories of combat and survival, and I'm like, I want to tell all these stories. And lo and behold, the Hazard Ground was born, and. and you know, I, I think when I when I read about your podcast and I've listened to a couple of episodes and and I'm like, you know, you, you just have bigger names. Like, for, and I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way. I just there are more famous people out there who have that moment. And, and I think it's great that we're kind of on the same linear path, um, just discussing different people. You mentioned Rob Riggle, who yeah. actually is a former Marine, Randy Gautier, who is a former U.S. Army sergeant. Um, those guys must have been incredible stories and in what they had to say. Oh,
0: they are amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing stories. So. Here's Rob Riggle's um, Brink of Midnight moment. That's, I mean, you have to listen to the full episode, but the, the biggest moment that happened in his life was when he was flying with the Marines. He had been in for three years, and it's an eight-year commitment uh, when you're flying. And after eight, you then serve another nine, and you get full retirement. So he's like, wow, they, that's a long time. He gets a call from a friend and who was in Chicago, and he said, you know how you were just kind of always hamming it up in, in college? Well, they have a name for it in Chicago. It's called Improv. You should do it. You could make money doing that. And he he never even thought about having a career in comedy. He went down to the beach that night, and he said, it is extraordinarily important for to me that I not abandon my commitment. He said, I don't want to abandon my commitment to my country. I want to serve my country. He said, but I also want to chase this dream now of, wow, maybe I could do comedy. So he transferred from being a pilot to being part of the ground troops. And that was a five-year commitment. So he said, okay, I'll stay for another two years and fulfill my five-year commitment. On that night, he wrote down on a piece of paper, I will be on Saturday Night Live. He wrote down on a piece of paper, nearly 10 years to almost the day He ended up being cast on Saturday Night Live, launching his comedy career. It was unbelievable. And he has done so much uh, on giving back to tons of military charities. Um, He's just an incredible guy. And Randy Couture took one of the craziest journeys you've ever heard. I mean, he is Captain America for a reason. So Randy Couture was on the path to wanting to be in the U.S. Olympic uh, – he wanted to be on the U.S. Olympic team, on the, on the U, at least making the trials um, for wrestling. And he was on his way, and he ended up getting his girlfriend pregnant. And he's like, well, this is early, like early in college. He's like, well, you know, what am I going to do? Now i got to make a choice. Um, am I going to pursue my dream of wrestling, or am I going to provide for my child? And he made the decision, I'm going to join the Army, and I'm going to provide for my child. So he was stationed in, he, he literally had abandoned his wrestling dreams. He was stationed in Germany, and as it turns out, this was a couple years into, into his service, there was a wrestling tournament that he didn't, he didn't even know it existed, but he heard about it, and he's like, oh, there's a wrestling tournament there. Well, you know what? I haven't wrestled in a while, but I'll go ahead and, and wrestle in this tournament. He ends up winning this tournament, and unbeknownst to him, it gives him automatic entry into the U.S. trials, the U.S. Olympic trials for wrestling.
1: Wow. He's <laughs> That's like, amazing. I was
0: on that path, and somehow he's like, I went all the way around the world and it took years to get to the place that I ultimately wanted to, that I was right next to, and it passed through the military. It was an un- unbelievable, unbelievable story. It's an unbelievable podcast, you know, and both those guys just. You know, everybody has this incredible story of like, wow, if I hadn't gotten my girlfriend pregnant and joined the military, my life never would have shaped it, you know, turned out the way that it did.
1: I mean, that's just unreal. I mean, it it seems like it's just good fortune for some of these people, right? It's a fortuitous bounce. And and a lot of it, at least I believe, you kind of make your own luck at times. But do you find in talking to a lot of these people that it's something that they did that helped? Their, their moment along the way, so to speak?
0: Yeah, I, and I, I, I ask everybody, you know, how do you explain the brink of midnight moments that end up happening? Like, how do you explain it? And really, the common denominator, regardless of your religious belief, is that there is an energy to the universe. It's just undeniable. And the events that end up happening happen for some sort of divine reason. Um, the energy being in the right place at the right time at that right moment, when you think about the way that things line up for better or worse, when you think of the odds of some tragedy happening and you think of what are the odds of when you actually do the math of it, it's so small, it's hard. It's hard to say, Oh, it was just a fluke. It's like, that's the way the energy was lined up vice versa to that is when things go the right way it's like the energy you're in the right place at the right time in the right frame of mind my wife and i often ask the question what if we hadn't sat next to each other like what or what if we met 5 years earlier would 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 it have worked out would we have gotten married i think the answer is no because the if we met 5 years earlier we would have been very different people sure, I, you had yeah. to, you had to be in a different You had to be in a specific frame of mind, in a spiritual place, in a mental place, in a physical place. And you just had to be, that energy has to line up. And that, to me, is the common denominator in all the stories.
1: Well, and they're not all, hey, these stories are wonderful and have a happy ending. Ryan Leaf was a former NFL quarterback, was addicted to drugs and had to go through all his trials and tribulations. So, you know, how does his story kind of match up with everybody else's?
0: Yeah, it's those the, it, what's interesting is asking Ryan, what are the moments? What is the moment that changed you? And all of these, you know, famous athletes and celebrities that we've had on our podcast, none of them say, "Oh, it was making the game-winning catch in the Super Bowl or being Super Bowl MVP or winning an Oscar or that's not the moment that changed their life. There's something along the way that is in the background that people don't even know about." So for Ryan, when I said, what is the moment that changed your life? Is it being drafted into the NFL? No, nope, that didn't change my life. That, that did not shape the person who I would ultimately become. For him, he went down this very dark road where there were very high expectations on him. He started his NFL career 2-0, and and his last college game was against Tom Brady in the Rose Bowl, which he won. And Ryan, so Ryan was on this winning streak, this very high-profile winning streak. He loses one game— and all of a sudden things just start to fall apart for him he ends up you know he ends up out of the league shortly thereafter he doesn't have a long career and he becomes addicted to opioids drugs he's just addicted to painkillers in a single day he tried to kill himself unsuccessfully he tried to slit his wrist it was unsuccessful he then wanted to go lock himself in his parents garage cuz he didn't have a garage cuz he was now broke Uh, drove over to his parents' place to to lock himself in a garage. His parents were home, and they were supposed to be away. So he then goes over to another house and breaks in to steal uh, uh, more prescription uh, pills that he knows that this house always stocks, ends up getting arrested, thrown in jail. He then is in jail for 32 months. I'm like, well, what is the moment that actually changed you? He said, you know what? My cellmate was a, a, a vet from the Afghan war what the war in Afghanistan. And, you know, this guy had served his country, had seen horrible things. And like many people, um, just made one mistake and he was involved in a DUI and killed somebody. And he was in prison with me and he was my cellmate. He on one particular day got in my face and this is, you know, 20, 26 months into his, uh, jail sentence, got in his face and said, you are wasting your life. You do not understand the gifts that you are given and that you are serving nobody but yourself. You you today right now are going to go teach somebody to read because most of this jail doesn't know how to read. And on that day, on that moment, Ryan said, that was his brink of midnight moment, going to teach somebody to read in jail. In fact, he extended his stay because he was enjoying giving back so much. Now, once he got out of jail, he now is just full of serving others. That is his sole mission in life. He's doing lots of, lots of work with veterans, especially with um, MVP. He has his own foundation um, and he's doing nothing but giving back and serving. And he said, you know what? I was making millions of dollars a year. And when I got out, my first job was driving people to the recovery center for $15 an hour. And I was never happier in my life but it wouldn't have happened without his soulmate getting in the space on that day. And I said, but hadn't, hadn't people all told you that before you got, you had a great family structure, great father, great mother, great supportive. He's like, I know, but none of it penetrated until that day.
1: It's unreal. It just, is. I mean, it's beautiful. It's touching. It's, you know, uh, to hear stories like that, it's, I, th- I think your podcast brings to light all those things and, and, Wow, I mean, how do you process all that? That's a lot to hear, you know, especially from somebody who had so much and then lost so much and now is giving so much back. I mean, think about that circle yeah. of life, so to speak, John. I mean, it's just it's, um, it, it that that's whew, breathtaking.
0: It 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 is. It really it really is. And when we had Trent Dilfer on the broadcast on a, on the podcast, um, Trent lost his child, his son, when he was five and a half years old. And th- going through this tragedy, where they were at Disneyland, and you know Trent Dilfer obviously won a Super Bowl with the Ravens, and it's just a, he became a very good friend of mine. He lost his son when his son was five and a half years old, and it was amazing to hear uh, just the journey that he took, the the dark, dark journey that he had to go through, and how he came out of it. And I, and he said, you know, what happens over time when a tragedy ha- when a tragedy occurs is that every day that goes by, you remember the darkness less and you see the light more. And he said, and it's finally occurred to me that I didn't lose my son when I was five and a half. I was given a gift that lasted five and a half years. And I'm like, that is such an amazing way (laughs) to look at it. Oh, and I mean... You cannot listen to this podcast without without crying. I mean, literally, you're not human if you don't. Because when you dig deep and you think about think about those dark moments that we all have. I mean, I have my own dark moments. You have your own dark moments. And when you think about that darkness, how do you then how do you then learn from it and ultimately see the light? And how do you take tragedy and turn it into a positive in your life? You know, Ray Lewis, who was our first guest grew up in a very underprivileged area. You know, it was just, he didn't have a father. It was just him and his mother. And his mother was involved in an incredibly abusive relationship with her boyfriend. And Ray said, mom, give me a deck of cards. And this was his big brink of midnight moment. She said, give me a deck of cards. She said, what for? He said, trust me. He took the deck of cards, went in his room. He was was literally 14, 15 years old, threw down a jack, would do 10 pushups threw down an eight, would do eight sit-ups. He would do thousands of push-ups and sit-ups a day until he got to be big enough and strong enough to get that guy out of his house. And he said, at that moment, I knew that if I wanted things to work out in my life, I had to take control of my life myself. And he taught that lesson when he was 14, 15 years old by doing push-ups and sit-ups and getting, changing his environment on his own.
1: You know, it's amazing to me as I'm sitting here listening to you tell the stories of your podcast. Every story you tell, I can relate another podcast of ours that's very yep. similar to yours. Like when you talk about, you know, the moment uh, that that you you met your wife on the plane and everything else. You know, Jason Van Camp was supposed to be in a Humvee, and at the last second, he got a call from his commanding officers stay behind that Humvee got hit with an IED everybody was injured or killed in it and he managed to stay alive you know you talk about Ryan Leaf right. his moment Noah Galloway who was a guest on our podcast he was actually the guy who was on Dancing with the Stars um, talks about his moment in jail when he got a DUI and was thrown in jail for the night and how it, it saved him and and changed his life and he decided to become a better father I mean you know you hear all these stories that you're telling and it's just I, I, there's there's a podcast of ours that we can actually connect to yours, it, it's uncanny. But I, I think the message that we're both trying to convey is incredibly similar. Again, part of the reason why we wanted to have you on, but it's just it's it's Absolutely. it's fantastic to hear that uh, you know there is a bigger purpose in all this, and I think that's kind of what we're both shooting for.
0: It is, and and I imagine. I have a question for you because we are doing such some, you know, we're doing similar things and spreading the positive energy, you know, from whether it be from tragedy or life altering moments that are you finding with your guests that there is a common denominator in, there is a purpose that that happened. Something happened. It's inexplicable at the time that it happened. And ultimately you learn there, there was a reason that that happened.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, it- The one mantra that everybody kind of holds to uh, in what goes on and how they handle themselves is they always tell me, I just didn't want to let anybody down. You know, that that is the one thing I think soldiers, airmen, Marines always express is that they didn't want to let the person next to them down. And that is something that really um, facilitates a lot of their actions and a lot of their decisions um, and, and everything that comes good in whatever situation there is is because they decided that I'm just not going to let anybody down. You know, I I think that's really the one crystallizing thought or the crystallizing thought that they all have that, you know, really makes a difference to them.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how that to me, that is rooted in love. Yeah, It's rooted in, look, I'm doing this because it's, it's the right thing to do. It's the direction I should go. Um, it was really interesting. We have an upcoming guest with Santonio Holmes. He believed that he had greatness inside of him at age 12, and he lived in the third poorest county in Florida. Um, and he was essentially the patriarch of the family. There's no doubt around. And, you know, it was, it was like six kids from six different mothers and, and you know, just, just like, I mean, I'm sorry, six kids from six different fathers. And Santonio went to his grandmother on one particular day in his big brink of midnight moment is he said, there's greatness inside of me that will never be realized if I have to be a father at age 12. She said, you come to church with me, you follow the way I got your back and I'll let you pursue your greatness. And I said that when you're 12 years old, he's like, I made the Super Bowl, you know, the game winning catch in the Super Bowl that did not change my life. It changed because my grandmother told me she had my back. It's like, it's like this act of love changed his life. It's it's amazing how these stories all all come together.
1: You know, I'm starting to think you hear all these stories. Do you tell all these stories about these kids at a young age realizing this? You know, when I was 11, I was going to be shortstop at the Yankees, but somehow Derek Jeter got in my way, and it didn't exactly work out well for me. So my <laughs> brink of midnight moment didn't exactly go down that way. But uh, I certainly That's have right. had other ones. But you know, just a little anecdotal uh, humor there. Beyond that, I, I just I love what you're doing, and and I love the people that you have on there. Uh, and, and just, I don't want to give away all your guests. Obviously I want people to go check it out. It's called the brink of midnight podcast is anecdotally. Is there anything in doing the podcast that you have found out that's kind of struck you as humorous, uh, lighthearted, funny, whatever it may be. That is a, is a consistent theme.
0: You know, the, the, in terms of humorous and lighthearted, what I can tell you is uh, the, 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 thing that has surprised me the most is how, empathetic I now am as a human being. When people look at someone's situation like oh man that person is really down and out, I just I just think about all of these stories and I'm like, you know what? I can empathize with that. I am that person. Like I very well could be that person. That dark moment, like being able to rise and see the light. That person needs a helping hand. It's really it, it really has made me very, very empathetic um, in, in people's situations and what they find, uh, where they find themselves. Often they are able to be positive and find the humor in it um, and, you know, keep positive and keep plugging away. Um, but our podcast really, it, as a person to me, has made me very empathetic.
1: You know, everybody who has been injured that we've interviewed on the hazard ground, there's not a single one that I've talked to yet that ever has a regret about either being injured or has ever looked at their injury or their loss of a limb or whatever it may be as a handicap or a a, a, a something that's debilitating. They all just yep. go about it and go forward like to, to them, it's just hey, this is life. And and they're not sad. They're not upset. And, you know, a lot of people get down and out about certain things, you know. But, again, like Noah Galloway, was, when he got back, he was told the story of how he was drinking, you know, relentlessly and, you know, drinking and driving and everything else. But he never once complained, hey, I only got one arm and one leg. Like he was upset about a right. lot of things because of, of you know, his life and where it was going. And he went through a divorce and this, that, and the other. But, you know, he never once said, oh, yeah, my life sucks because I only have one arm and one leg. Like nobody has ever expressed a sentiment that they're upset about, you know, missing a limb or the damage that has been caused physically. Of course, they all would love to have all their limbs intact, but they realize that's not the case. So uh, I think it's along those same lines.
0: Isn't it interesting how we all have trauma in our lives? It just depends on how visual it actually is. I mean, we have all kinds of things that happen to us, and to us, it's, it's, it's just relative to us. That's all we have to relate to. I think that by sharing these stories of other people, you really can keep reminding yourself, you know what, no matter what situation I'm in, there is somebody who just objectively I can say has it harder than
1: me. No
0: matter who it is, you're like, wow, that guy has it harder. That girl has it harder than me. I, and you can and you can really then become extraordinarily empathetic and say, "Wow, the depression that I that I may be going through now, or the event that that has just occurred to me, yes, it's bad at the time and relative to me in my life, it's awful. But relative to the grand scheme of things, man, am I a fortunate person? It's a it's amazing. You're right. We have Scout Bassett coming up. Um, you know who has uh, you may recognize her. She's um, a Paralympian. Um, and she works with the, the Challenged Athletes Foundation, which is one of the greatest foundation works with a lot of war veterans, um, get, gets people athletic prosthetics essentially. She uh, did, did a national uh, campaign for Citibank and for Nike during this last Olympics. She's a sprinter. Um, she, her story of so she had no leg, and she was adopted um, from a Chinese orphanage where for the first eight years of her life, she did not go outside. No windows. No TV, no books, nothing. She only knew the inside of a box where she was living, wow. which was essentially her orphanage. And when she gets adopted and brought over to the United States, it's she was living in Michigan. It's the first time she saw grass and trees and animals and other people. And anything. And she was eight. And she's like, I vividly remember this. You think about that situation that she is. She's like, I'm the only Asian in my town. I'm the only amputee in my town. I don't speak the language and I don't know anything. Anything I've never seen anything I don't know anything I think about that as a child and then she rises to become this amazing you know this this, this amazing uh, Paralympian and just model citizen just the podcast is going to blow you away but it's, it's never once is she like oh she never majors on the fact that she doesn't have a leg and that she's upset about it she's like this is who I am this is this is. This is the way that life shook out for me. It's just its amazing to hear these stories.
1: Perspective is so, so important. And I'll give you anecdotally a perspective at its finest by asking you a question. Every guy that we've talked to, and this is something I found out I didn't know um, about the podcast, or I encountered that I didn't know was going to be the case. Everybody that I've talked to on the podcast who was involved in some sort of explosion where they lost a limb or multiple limbs, the explosion happens. Do you know what the first thought in their mind is?
0: Is everybody else alive?
1: No. What? The first thought that every guy wonders after the explosion is my junk okay. <laughs> that is perspective because and honestly it's the it's the first question they all ask themselves and that's the first thing that they check. And once that's okay, they're like, okay, I'll, whatever else is happening, I'm good, you know. <laughs> and it's 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 funny and it's humorous. But when and I, when I stopped to think about it, and I said, you know what, that's probably what I would be concerned with too. Because well, if that's gone, then things are really in a bad spot. I can deal with a missing leg or a missing arm as long as I got all my parts intact. I'm still a man. And so I just found that rather humorous. But it certainly is perspective at its finest.
0: It it, it certainly is perspective at its finest. It's also. You know your identity. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're like, hey, this, this defines me. You know, I am defined by this. I'm not defined by my right arm.
1: <laughs> so yeah, it's it's. It, I, I certainly enjoyed learning that. And uh, Daniel Gate was one of the guys he was a West Point professor, and he tells such an incredible story about what he had one of his guys do to check to make sure that everything was okay down there. But uh, you know, again, I, I just I, I love what we're both doing here. I, I'm I'm glad that we've kind of developed this relationship and that both of our podcasts are really aimed at, at, at telling stories and and leaving a positive impact on people I think that's important.
0: yeah absolutely I mean it's it, I feel I feel that I have such a blessed life and have obviously gone through my own ups and downs um, but I feel as though you know we're here on this planet to perpetuate love and positive energy. that's what our job is to do um, and anything I can do to you know help one person that it sounds like a cliche but it's true one person hears this podcast and says, you know what, I think I've got new perspective on life. I think that, you know, I want to hear about other people. I want to serve other people. I want to help other people, you know, and then, then we've done, we've done our job.
1: So outside of writing Christmas songs and uh, sports science and the break <laughs> of midnight podcast, what else is, is occupying your time these days, John?
0: Gosh, you know, um, you know, I wrote a New York times bestselling book called the perfection point. Um, I, the the, the thing that occupies, you know, my time, you know, outside of work is, you know, hundred percent my kids, you know, I live in park city, Utah now. And, you know, I have a, a daughter who's, you know, really excelling in gymnastics and a son who's excelling in lacrosse. And, you know, park city is, you know, it is just, it's such an amazing place to uh, be able to raise her children. So, you know, I've, I've always been a family first guy. Um, so that's what really occupies, um, all my time. You know, I've got my wife and two kids and, just have, you know, amazing life out in Park City. And, um, you know, you have to try try to be there as much as possible, you know, while going out and still working and, um, you know, spreading the good word.
1: Well, listen, nothing but continued success. Uh, we will certainly direct our listeners over to your podcast because, uh, again, we're both telling similar stories just from different people. And uh, I think there's a great relationship here in, in what we have formed and in, in what we're trying to do. And, uh, we'll continue to watch sports science, and we'll continue to check out the Brink of Midnight podcast. And next time Christmas rolls around, we'll be listening for your song.
0: Absolutely, cannot wait to have you on as a guest on the Brink of Midnight. I think that uh, I would
1: love that. Thank you. you. I'd be honored. <laughs> I don't know if I have such a great awesome. story, but uh, I'll give it a shot.
0: Uh, yeah, man, this is uh, this is going to be a great relationship. I mean, I will make sure that that we give lots of love to uh, to your podcast. Cause I think you're doing a wonderful
1: thing. Well, John Brankus, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it you've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by mark
0: zeno and produced by matt pascarella if you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com and if you like the show don't forget to subscribe rate and review on itunes thanks for listening we'll see you next time